Well, thank you very much for uh, uh, coming to this uh, lecture at the LSE Middle East Institute. I am Middle East Institute, or Middle East Centre, actually, I should say. Uh, my name is Ali Ansari, and I'm currently, uh, among a number of different things, a visiting professor here at the Centre. And um, I'm very pleased to welcome Siravush uh, Ranjbad Daimi, who is coming to us from the Department of History at the University of Manchester. Uh, and as you can see, he's going to talk to us about the quest for authority, the presidency, and its standing in the Islamic Republic, which will be uh, the subject, as you can see from this stellar, truly stellar cover, uh, of his forthcoming uh, book, which I understand will be out later yeah. in the summer. Um, now, I have to give you a few little bit of uh, logistical and other administrative uh, guidance, because I, I have to say the LSE is marvellous. They give you a nice long list of instructions to follow, so I'm going to try and follow them as closely as possible. Sandra will glare at me when I miss out certain things. Uh, so I've introduced myself, which is rather good. I've introduced the speaker, which is even better. He will have 40 minutes or so to speak. Uh, do silence your phones, please. If you have phones, do silence them. You don't have to switch them off but do silence them. We'd rather they didn't start ringing. Uh, but, and here's the bit that really baffles me, uh, if you'd like to tweet about the event, this is a bit that causes me a certain amount of heartburn, but if you'd like to tweet about the event, the hashtag is LSE Iran. Is that right? Cool. Goodness knows. But anyway, there you are. Um, now, I'm also meant to... Uh, uh, let you know that if in the event of an emergency you should evacuate the building by the nearest staircase so don't try and leap out of any windows all right that's good <laughs> excellent so the nearest staircase i understand to do my best uh, british airway stewardess i think is that way so i think you'll find it anyway so those are the logistical um the logistical uh, uh bits and pieces as i said i'm very very pleased to welcome siavush i've known him for for many many years he's a rising star in the firmament of uh, historians of modern Iran. Um, uh, I had the distinct pleasure, I have to say, of examining his thesis a good few years ago. Actually, it wasn't that many years ago. Uh, but uh, a little while back, he studied with Vanessa Martin in Royal Holloway. And it was really one of the best theses that I'd had the pleasure of examining. So there's something. And I can be really quite miserable in examinations. And I didn't have any opportunity to be miserable in his examination, which is a bad sign. Maybe I don't know. But anyway, it was very, very encouraging. So Siavush will um, speak for about 40 minutes, and then we'll open the floor for questions. Um, I Just to let you know that this is being uh, recorded. So do bear that in mind uh, when you do come. If you do have questions to ask, please introduce yourself. Please keep your questions short, and we'll hopefully get everyone an opportunity uh, to ask Siavush questions on what is a very, very uh, relevant uh, topic, given that we're coming up to the Iranian presidential election, I think, yeah, in, in May. May, that's right. So without further ado, Siavush, the floor is yours. Thank you very much. I will move to the podium. So... Um, Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you very much for coming. Um, I will disclose that I was actually a student of the LSE. I did my bachelor here between 1999 and 2002, <laughs> but we didn't have these, these uh, modern towers uh, back then. So 
uh, it is quite interesting to be here, coming down from the steps of northwestern England. Um, my uh, talk is on uh, uh, the forthcoming book. Um, it is, I think, the very first time that the cover uh, makes it out to the public. It's a, um, it's a cover that sort of explains what the, who the main characters of the narrative are, really. And it's one of, I think, the first works which looks at the history of the Islamic Republic from the perspective of the presidency, from the revolution all the way to uh, uh, the current president. Now, the reason why this book is coming out in uh, roundabout June is that I think you will excuse both myself and the publishers, Ibi Torres, for being cautious after Donald Trump's victory. And uh, I think our aim is to avoid uh, the mistake made by Homeland. If you're watching Homeland's uh, uh, latest season, you will realize that the president-elect is a woman. And it just started, I think, a couple of weeks ago. So um, mindful of Homeland's mistake, we are a bit cautious, and we want to wait for the presidential elections in May before wrapping the book up and finally making it available to the wider public. So what is this uh, book, and what does this talk about? Well. Given that we are the London School of Economics and Political Science, allow me to make a very brief theoretical premise. Uh, the book and the talk are really about uh, the state in contemporary Iran, the state in post-revolutionary Iran. And what we mean by the state is usually derives from Western canons and Western frameworks of political theory. And the very etymological origin of the state, of the term state, comes from the Latin uh, stare. And... Um, it has the meaning of uh, uh, established, of, of, of a form of governance which is established, fixed, stable. The rules and regulations are subject to little variation. Of course, uh, I think Donald Trump is, as we speak, actively contradicting me. But um, that is the conventional uh, Western political theory reading uh, of the state. And at the heart of the state are the institutions. There are the components which emerge out of a constitutional framework. And allow me to um, uh, adopt the definition of a prominent uh, political theorist, Norberto Bobbio, and his uh, meaning, his, uh, his definition of institutions as the representation of legitimate power in the Weberian sense uh, of the word, uh, and uh, power whose decisions are accepted and realized insofar as they emanate from an authority recognized as having the right to making binding decisions for the whole collectivity. So uh, institutions have a certain authority which is recognized within the state and by um, society. And uh, um, the um, uh, of course, Iran is not in a state of anarchy. There has been a post-revolutionary state in place since 1979. Uh, there has been a constitution which has been introduced once uh, at the end of 1979, approved through referendum, and then modified in 1989. So uh, the Iranian state has a lot of uh, institutions, um, some of them uh, more visible, others uh, more opaque. Um, and 
Um, at the risk of sounding essentialist, I will claim that the Islamic Republic is a unique state system. It, uh, it has a unique configuration of uh, institutions. And my second premise, which I'll come back to at the end, is that the Islamic Republic is not yet in a stable dimension with regards to the um, construction of uh, the state system. Um, it, is not yet, uh, it has not yet reached a stage in which the authority of each institution is well-defined and has entered into a predictable routine, meaning that um, each of the presidents that you see and discover uh, has not gone through a process of taking up the presidency and being the incumbent in the presidency in a way which is uh, really uh, definable according to uh, a set of um, canons, traditions, and routine. Um, and each of them has been involved in uh, the central uh, sentence of this title, a quest for authority. So why is this the case? And uh, where does the presidency emerge from? And what has been the presidency's role in the Iranian state system from 1979 to the present day? And in other words, how can we study the Iranian state system after the revolution by taking the presidency as the vantage point, as the sort of looking glass through which we look at the state system and we uh, derive some conclusions as to where are we exactly as the uh, Islamic Republic reaches, is, is approaching its 40th anniversary in terms of the development of the post-revolution Iranian state. Um, well, the presidency, um, Iran did not have a president or Iran did not have a position comparable to the president until 1979. And uh, uh, when you look at uh, uh, works which study um, the creation of the Islamic Republic state framework. There's a lot of emphasis on the vilayat fagi this cardinal principle which superimposes the rule of the uh, religious jurist over the state system and uh, uh, assigns uh, the bulk of political power to the, uh, to the fagi. Uh, and that is, that is often, quite rightly, uh, introduced and discussed as the innovation of the um, state-creating um, uh, process of uh, 1979. But the presidency in its current form was also an absolute innovation uh, within uh, uh, Iranian uh, political culture um, because, of course, the presidency is one of the hallmarks of a republican state system. And republicanism in uh, modern Iran has been a very fringe element of political thought all the way up to the revolution of 1979. Uh, there has been no structured republican movement in Iran for most of the 20th century. Only two episodes, one in 1924 when uh, Reza Khan Pahlavi put an end to the Gaja dynasty and for a very brief moment pondered the creation of a republic instead of a new dynasty. And in 1953, and uh, those uh, of you who are interested in this can have a look at my latest a journal article which looks at the Republican moment, as I call it, of August 1953, in the days immediately prior to the coup against uh, Mohammed Mossadegh. And even then, there was a brief movement to create a republic, but obviously it was uh, taken, it was swept away by the coup of August 1953. But so much so that 
By the end of 1978, when the Revolutionary Front was progressively uh, gaining consistency as one was on the verge of, of bringing down the uh, Pahlavi monarchy, there was no structured Republican thought. Nobody was really there with a ready uh, Republican constitution to put into place and replace the constitution that was in place in Iran from the first decade of the 20th century. And uh, the person that Khomeini trusted to write the first drafts of the post-revolutionary constitution, Hassan Abibi, uh, was a sociologist who was trained in France. He was a Francophile when it came to political thought. And uh, he simply uh, picked up the uh, institutional framework of the French Fifth Republic, the Gaullist Republic, and uh, proposed it for uh, the Iranian case. And this is where the Iranian presidency comes from. This is the uh, root of the Iranian presidency as we see it today. Uh, and um, in the same uh, guise as the French model, the presidency is di elected directly by the people. There is no electoral college system like the United States. And uh, uh, the election is nationwide. Now, the nationwide election is another innovation in the Iranian political culture because elections in Iran only um, started with uh, uh, the aftermath of the Constitutional Revolution of 1906-1911, but of course they were parliamentary elections for parliamentary constituency and localized, therefore, elections. The presidential elections were the first instance in which we had nationwide elections in which the whole nation turns effectively into a single constituency and votes in the same way, whether the, uh, the, uh, the voter is in Kurdistan or in Tehran or in elsewhere. So much so that there are no electoral wards in Iran. Uh, one can vote anywhere in the country in, uh, in presidential elections. Uh, there is no register of voters. One can just show up with an ID card and vote in any uh, polling station. So this was an innovation. Uh, it, 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 it went through various, the various drafts of the Constitution in 1979, approved in the final version, and this mechanism has stayed the same since 1979. And uh, what it uh, brought uh, about in Iran are these regular presidential elections every four years, and they have assumed a momentum of their own. And uh, uh, some of them were extremely contentious. They set off very severe crises within the political system, 2009, I think, is the prime example. And uh, uh, in recent years, uh, there has been a sort of a uh, sort of, uh, if you want, uh, informal contract of sorts between state and society. Society uh, takes part with gusto and with um, uh, energy in the presidential elections, uh, in the campaigning, in the voting, and more. Uh, it is, uh, uh, I think, well aware of the fact that these elections are not maybe an unfettered democratic ones as we intend them, but they give uh, the chance. They give the chance to make a choice between, at times, very differing agendas. And at times, the elections are used as an indirect tool for uh, expressing uh, severe displeasure with respect to uh, the central government. So, for example, one of the... Um, more interesting election results for me, and one which is rather shielded in these uh, sequence of considerable electoral results of the past 40 years, was in 1993 when the Kurdistan region voted for um, the candidate who was opposed to the 
outgoing president was seeking re-election, Hashimi Rafsanjani. And they all voted for Ahmad Tawakuli, who wasn't a defender of Kurdish rights, I think, by any means. But it was a way of showing how much displeasure there was with regards to Rafsanjani's conduct with regards to the Kurdistan and the Kurdish um, issue. So um, where does the presidency stand? with regards to the pecking order of power in the Islamic Republic. And uh, you will be all aware that the Islamic Republic is a complex state system. It has this unique blend between elected institutions and um, clerical oversight ones. And in 1992, Mohsen Milani uh, wrote um, uh, one of the rare, actually, journal articles, academic articles on the Iranian presidency, and he defined it in this way. And I think his uh, definition still retains validity. And he said, the presidency is weak but truly unique. It is the only system in the world, the Islamic Republic, in which the elected president must be approved by an unelected fagi. Uh, it is the only system in which the removal of the president is ultimately dependent on a decision of the fagi. It is the only system in which the president, indeed the entire executive, is subordinated to a religious authority, the fagi. And um, this is the biggest and most complex issue every president has had to face. Because effectively, becoming president in Iran means uh, sitting on two stools, securing inner regime approval, and uh, which allows to go through the main formal hurdle, i.e. Uh, approval by the Guardian Council and vetting by the Guardian Council in order to uh, enter into the official candidacy lists. That on one side. On the other, of course, once this uh, obstacle is, uh, is overcome, securing uh, a majority in the popular vote. And uh, uh, this has been obviously, uh, so, so the people here plus uh, Abul Hassan Bani Saad, who, who I think for questions of space couldn't fit into this collage, uh, unfortunately, um, had to go through uh, these hurdles. Well, Bani Saad didn't have to go through the first hurdle, but all these other ones did. Uh, and uh, compounded into that is the fact that uh, there is a difference between uh, presidential elections in Iran and presidential elections in France and the United States and more. In that, in the United States and France, the eventual winner of the presidential elections goes through two races. The first race is to become the candidate for a given party. So there are primaries, pretty much, I think, both in France and, of course, in the United States. And the second one is, of course, the election on the, uh, in, the, in the wider public, in, in the wider society, and getting the vote in the presidential elections proper. In Iran, registering for the presidency uh, requires going to the interior ministry and filling in a form. There is no requirement to collect signatures, no requirement to have the support of any political organization or more. Uh, and, um, of course, once the registration takes place, uh, the candidates, the candidacies are forwarded to the Guardian Council, approved, and then the official campaigning starts. So uh, the candidate is more, uh, up until uh, the registration, becoming a presidential candidate is more a question of backroom politics, of informal uh, discussions and negotiations and trying to find a compromise within the loose personal factions, associations, and, and the political formations which form the Iranian factions. And now, factionalism has, always, has, has often been used as a, as a sort of a surrogate, a replacement for political party politics in Iran, but, but uh, f Iranian factions are far more informal and far more loose 
than political parties in the Western sense. And in the book, I spent a good deal of time tracing the candidacies of these, uh, of these people, how these people actually became presidential candidates in the first place and why they became presidential candidates in the first place. For example, Khatami, who, who became, who, who won on a landslide and, and really ran a, a very electric presidential campaign, which is actually described in, in great detail in, in Ali's book, which is, I think, coming out in a revised edition as well in, in May 2017. Um, he was the last man standing of the left-wing uh, sort of factions. Uh, one by one, the various candidates uh, pulled out of the race. Uh, Miro Sein Musavi, who ran for the presidency in 2009, uh, pulled out from the race at the last moment, and so did Mehdi Karubi, who also ran in 2009. And Khatami uh, very reluctantly stood up, and uh, the aim was to create, end up second or third, and create a, uh, a strong minority uh, after years in which the left-wing factions were in the wilderness. So much so that Khatami's campaign manager, his brother, Muammar Reza Khatami, went and voted very early in the morning in May 1997 and rushed to the airport because he was going to a medical conference in Australia. And somewhere between, I think, Tehran and Kuala Lumpur, somebody must have gotten hold of him and said, you know, we actually won the elections, fly back <laughs> to, uh, to Iran. <laughs> but this gives you also an idea of, uh, of the fact that given that candidates are not really sure of their popularity all the way to the election, because there's no primary, no political party and more, sometimes they simply have uh, very minimal aims and very minimal um, uh, expectations on their electoral performance and suddenly they come in through uh, shock victories. So. Uh, to go back with some order, um, the first presidential elections are held in Iran in, in, in January of 1980, and uh, they were very uh, uh, experimental ones because Iran never really had an experience in this regard. And uh, due to uh, his opponents' uh, bungling of candidacies and strategies and more, and the fact that he secured support from one major clerical organization, Bani Saad became uh, president. And... Um, from the moment Bani Saab became president, all the inadequacies and all the uh, lack of experience in uh, managing such an institution became known. Uh, on the one hand, he was bestowed with powers that the presidency did not receive uh, after him. For example, he became the de facto commander-in-chief of the armed forces. The constitution attributed this power to Khomeini as the Fagi. Khomeini didn't want it and simply devolved it away to, uh, uh, to Bani Saad. Um, he was invested with the Farmone Humayuni, which was a monarchical prerogative according to which the Shah could appoint uh, governors of the central bank and other senior economic figures without seeking any formal approval and more. So he was invested with a lot of power, but he ran into the quicksand into the, uh, when it came to uh, forming a government because uh, the uh, copying of the mechanisms within the French Fifth Republic for uh, um, regulating the relationship between the president and the prime minister fell foul of the fact that Iran was not France, Iran did not have the goal, and uh, there was a very uh, severe dissonance between Banisad and his opponents, which were then, who were then uh, collected under the moniker of the Islamic Republic Party. So much so that Iran did not have a complete cabinet form until 
after the Banisad presidency, and Banisad was impeached in uh, June of 1981. And um, while, uh, while his um, opponents plotted the downfall of Banisad, they progressively started to strip the powers that had been assigned to him. So shortly before his formal impeachment, he was stripped of the powers of commander-in-chief of the armed forces. He was stripped of the Farmone Humayuni and many other powers. And what is interesting is that once he was impeached and was removed from power and then uh, uh, Ali Khamenei became uh, president after him in the uh, autumn of 1981, these powers were not given back. So uh, the Banisad presidency resulted in a weakening of the powers uh, and the authority of the presidency in a rather uh, durable way. And uh, so much so that in the... Um, uh, January of 1985, when uh, Khamenei was up for re-election, he uh, was rather open about the limitations of his power and the increasing powers of the prime minister of the time, uh, Mirosein uh, Musavi. And uh, in the um, televised campaigning for his re-election, he actually said that his hands were tied behind his back and uh, if the president, if the prime minister and the economics minister were charting a wrong course in economic policy, he could do, he could do nothing about it. So much so that after his re-election, he tried in various ways to get rid of Musavi as the prime minister. The famous episode uh, came about, I think, in 1985 as the 99-man affair, when 99 members of the parliament tried to bring about a motion uh, to remove Musavi from the prime ministership, and this was defeated because Khomeini was opposed to it, and this left very serious uh, consequences in the whole way in which uh, Khamenei approached his leadership uh, after 1989. So, um, for the details, uh, I don't want to sound uh, self-advertising, uh, uh, but uh, you'll have to see uh, the book. Um, <laughs> Uh, because we could spend hours just, uh, just discussing this. But so much so that um, by the end of the 1980s, it became clear to everyone that the um, arrangement which had emerged uh, from the Constitution of 1979 within the executive branch, i.e. a division of labor between presidency and prime minister based on the French model, wasn't workable because it led to continuous turf wars, it led to uh, uh, continuous personal struggles which were accentuated by the fact that the Islamic Republican Party was dissolved in 1987 and Iran was effectively in a completely partyless uh, situation. So even the French model of cohabitation uh, was not really a cohabitation because it wasn't a cohabitation between well-defined opponents, but rather uh, took place in this very loose uh, factional setting. And uh, shortly before his death, in 1989, uh, Khomeini uh, decreed the creation of a revision council for the constitution to, to try to fix some of the more glaring shortcomings and problems that the constitution itself had. So there was an act of, if you want, institutional engineering happening and and the authority of various institutions had to be replanned and redesigned. And Khomeini was vague regarding most of the duties of this revision council. He appointed the members one by one. There was no election like there was in 1979 for the Constituent Assembly. But for the um, executive branch, 
he pressed for one thing, and that was tamarkoze mudiriat, uh, or the centralization of management within the executive branch. Quite what he meant by it remained vague, because after the 16th session of the Revision Council, Khomeini died, and the whole, uh, uh, his role was, 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 was up in the air. It was replaced, Khomeini swiftly replaced him before the end of the activities of the Revision Council. So um, the proceedings of the Revision Council have been published, and they're very interesting, because uh, in much the same way in which uh, France was the role model in 79, other countries uh, were brought in as examples of good presidencies or bad presidencies and how to resolve the centralization of management. So, for example, uh, Khamenei, uh, as president, had traveled shortly before all of this to Zimbabwe to attend the non-aligned movement uh, meeting. And uh, he came back with the idea, and Zimbabwe at that time was not like now. Robert Mugabe was not the... Uh, you know, the sort of uh, supreme president of Zimbabwe. It had a ceremonial presidency at the time. And he said, I've, 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 I've gone to Zimbabwe. I've seen the ceremonial presidency there. It's no good. We have to have an executive strong presidency. Uh, and, um, and he also brought up the example of Great Britain as a case in which there is a ceremonial head of state uh, who's doing nothing. He didn't have a great... Uh, view of the Queen. And uh, um, um, so he called for, that's why he stood up and he called for the abolition to core of the prime ministerial position and its replacement with a strong executive president. And uh, Musavi, who obviously was fighting for his own post pretty much, uh, stated that this would have created a form of dictatorship because there would be no oversight on the presidency and no sort of reining in of the presidency within the executive branch. But uh, the negative Zimbabwe example actually won the day, and uh, the prime ministerial position was, was abolished. So, again, if you read these uh, minutes, you realize how much comparative work has gone into this. And at some point, the, the debates went on an entirely comparative politics, if you want, direction. And uh, elements of the American constitution, elements of the Afro-Zimbabwe constitution of Great Britain, and many other countries... Uh, came in and, and, and were actually the model for the debate. And this also, once again, shows you how even 10 years after the Islamic Republic, the presidency was not yet a native element of statecraft. Mm -hmm. And in the quest to prove pros and cons of having a strong presidency or weak presidency, there was this recourse to foreign models once again. And, uh, however, the strong presidency, even because of the alignment between Khamenei and uh, the recently departed Hashmi Rafsanjani within the Revision Council won the day, and uh, Khamenei, of course, once again became leader before the Council uh, came to an end of the activities, meant that from 1989 onwards, there was no more prime ministership, and the executive branch was led by this uh, stronger presidency. Stronger, but not fully strong, because it was still subordinate to the Fagi. It was still uh, bound by... Uh, um, a lack of powers which uh, other presidencies had. For example, the commander-in-chief of the armed forces went back to the Fagi and, and, and Khamenei uh, took it up with gusto and did not delegate it anymore since uh, 1989. Uh, and um, um, Khamenei, again, was vested directly in the constitution. I think that's another unique element of the Iranian constitution with, for example, the authority to nominate the head of the radio and television. 
uh, there are, I think, very few constitutions which actually explicitly write this out, uh, attributing uh, to one, um, one, uh, one, one part of the state such uh, responsibility, responsibilities. But the, the presidency was more powerful. And uh, it was this powerful presidency that, uh, that Rafsanjani took over in 1989. And if you read the conventional readership on Rafsanjani, there's a lot of emphasis on his role as Sardar Sazandegi, or the commander in chief of, of reconstruction. And uh, in his eight years, of course, Iran uh, picked up uh, from the destruction and the uh, damage done by 10 years of conflict and revolution and, 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 and more. Uh, but Rafsanjani did not really strengthen the presidency um, because he spent most of, actually, uh, his first mandate shoring up his own authority within the state system. And that was partly because of factionalism. Uh, between 1988 and 1992, um, the left-wing factions, which remained the bedrock of opposition to Khamenei and Rafsanjani still had institutional clout. They still, control, they still had a majority uh, in the parliament, and they uh, uh, constantly tried to outright embarrass or, uh, or try to stymie Rafsanjani's moderate role. So, for example, when there was a coup in the Soviet Union in 1991, there was a serious motion in the Iranian parliament to go and actually recognize uh, the uh, coup government against Gorbachev as the legitimate uh, one in the Soviet Union, which was an act of practical political suicide, if you think about it. Or when Iraq invaded Kuwait in 1991, there was actually some movement to join the conflict on Iraq's side. And uh, all of this was not really because the people behind this motion, which belonged to this left-wing factions, believed in, in Yanayev as the real successor to, the Soviet, to Gorbachev or in Saddam Hussein against whom Iran had just fought a, eight-year war, but it was rather because uh, they were opposed and they were uh, really upset by the way Khamenei and Rasanjani took over political power almost in its entirety um, in, uh, in 1989. And uh, the result was that the two sort of came together with other um, elements of the state to rule out uh, the left-wing factions from institutional bodies. So in 1992, there were some there was the crucial elections for the fourth uh, majlis, the fourth legislature, and uh, um, the Guardian Council was endowed with a prerogative called Nezarate Estesfabi, or a sort of... Uh, we could say, supervision of the candidacies. And for no reason, literally for no reason, the Guardian Council from then onwards could exclude candidates from uh, the electoral competition. And uh, from 1992, this has become a cardinal element of, uh, of the Guardian Council's uh, interference and projection of authority within the state system. Exception made maybe for only one election, the parliamentary elections of 2000. Nezate Estesfabi has really been uh, uh, a main, uh, uh, an element which has really shaped uh, presidential, uh, presidentials and parliamentary elections uh, since, uh, since then. And uh, of course, Rafsanjani devised this as a short-term solution to a pressing problem he had, routing away the left wing from the scene. But this became durable, and it became cemented into statecraft. And what is interesting is that if you read his, uh, I actually wrote about Nezarate Sesfabi uh, in the book prior to 
the volume of Rafsanjani's memoirs related to that year, related to 1992 coming out, which I think came out last year. And then when I read his, his memoirs, they were quite interesting because uh, he uses the benefit of hindsight in a very liberal way. So those of you who read these memoirs, be very careful about what he says about this episode. Um, and um, um, uh, once he, was, he got rid of the left-wing factions, Rafson Johnny again did not win the day in the, la in the remainder of his presidency because uh, the people that took over from the left-wing, i.e. the right-wing, the conservatives, started to claim their own spoils of this war and started to really emasculate Rafsanjani considerably in many spheres, from the security sphere to the cultural sphere to the uh, freedom of expression to the media sphere and more. So much so that uh, I came across an incident in which there was the National Book Week in Iran and there was a speech by Rafsanjani and his culture minister, and Rafsanjani spent the best part of the speech public speech, pleading his culture minister to stop censoring books. And do uh, you think that these sort of things could be settled behind closed doors, could be settled in a, in a meeting of the cabinet or more? But uh, you can feel the exasperation of Rafsanjani and the fact that he felt that he couldn't privately get his uh, conservative erstwhile allies to, uh, to come along with him to uh, uh, recognize his influence within the state system. And matters got so much out of hand that in 1996, for the fifth parliamentary elections, uh, Rafsanjani's allies broke away from the mainstream conservatives and actually created what was the first party of we could call the president's men, the Karguzaranisas and Degi, that is still more or less active, and was a party that was created because uh, Rafsanjani's uh, supporters were really with their backs on the wall. They were becoming more and more marginalized on the political scene. The example of Karguzanisaz and Digi brings in a key issue which all these presidents have had to face, and it is that of the president's men, an alliance or formation or coalition or party or faction or whatever, of uh, uh, figures within other state institutions who are actually supporters of the president are ready to engage with him in the uh, division of political labor and support his attempts to accrue authority and influence in the rest of the state system. By and large, because of the unique nature of the Iranian uh, political, underlying political culture and statecraft, none of these presidents have really been successful in creating a durable uh, set of, of allies, of, of um, representatives in other state bodies that would go along with them and, uh, and heed to their advice and, and, and build really durable alliances. So, for example, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad is, is seen as this arch-conservative, this great hawk, this darling of the conservative right, but his relationship with the uh, conservatives deteriorated to the point that even, uh, he couldn't even get his brother-in-law, or uh, it's his brother-in-law, no, Mashai? No, his... Uh, yeah. Yes. His brother-in-law, no? Uh, Isfandiar Raim Mashai passed the Guardian Council hurdle in the 2013 elections. He was disqualified from, uh, uh, from the um, uh, competition. And the Guardian Council has always been a very conservative uh, uh, body. And uh, um, the same applies to a great extent to Mohammed Khatami as well. Mohammed Khatami... Uh, is one of the uh, more famous of these figures. He was elected in 1997 on a landslide. 
uh, on a promise to bring about Islahat. Now, curiously, I think Ali will agree with me, uh, Khadami did not call himself an Islah Talab or a reformist straight away. This was a term that gained currency later on through the reformist media. But when uh, this reformist pro uh, um, process entered into a state of crisis, Khatami remained first and foremost the president, not the reformist, and did not go along with uh, assisting his reformist colleagues in this process. So in 1999, um, the prominent daily Salam is banned. It is banned because it published uh, confidential information on uh, on, on a member, uh, famous or an infamous member of the secret services, Saeed Imami, uh, and, uh, ter and, and very serious disturbances erupt in central Tehran where the supporters of the reformists go and pretty much stage a sit-in and occupy the grounds of Tehran University. And uh, um, according to the editor of, uh, of Salam, he goes to Khatami and asks for support in this, in this very crucial uh, political crisis. And his impression is that Khatami was actually rather disappointed by, uh, by the turn of events, and he was rather disappointed by Salam's conduct more than by the uh, banning, by, by, by the conduct of the people who banned Salam. So there is this sense of belonging to the institution which is there in, the, in, the pres in, in some of the um, uh, figures in this cover. Uh, Khatami really refrained from... Uh, going beyond preventing the outbreak of even more violence, and here again I really defer to what Ali has written in his book on, on um, uh, managing change in Iran and the whole um, um, set of the whole sequence of political violence which erupted in Iran after the, um, after the uh, attempted assassination of the leading reformist theorician uh, Saeed Adjarian. Uh, he never really attempted in a serious way to further the reformist agenda. Because uh, the sense of, of being part of the state, the sense of, uh, of being uh, um, anxious to avoid an all-out confrontation between, within the political elite prevented him from really stepping forward and acting in a more pronounced way when uh, the, his, their opponents were acting in a systematic way to just destroy the reformist experiment. Ban publication after publication in the press. In 2004, make excessive use of Nizad Estesfabi to uh, sort of uh, bring an end to uh, uh, the um, uh, candidacies of many uh, outgoing MPs uh, and so forth. So, and uh, this uh, problem of not having the president's men is a... Uh, is a, is a continuous and a recurring phenomenon. Uh, even uh, if we look at Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, his problems were really there from the start. He had a very tough time in getting uh, each of his ministers past uh, the approval of parliament. In his second uh, tenure, it ended up in a really ugly way uh, with revelations and sorcerers and, uh, and, and all manner of black magic and more accusations. And it ended up in a really uh, almost uh, fist fight, daily fist fight confrontation between Ahmadinejad and the conservative factions, which were the only factions that were then active on the political scene. And um, so one of the main problems and one of the main obstacles uh, for the projection of authority by Iranian presidents has been that of 
navigating through the informality and the elasticity of the Iranian underlying Iranian um, pattern of statecraft. And this is not really unique to the Islamic Republic, because you could argue that even in the Shah's time, this elasticity was there, and political parties did not really assume a strong, uh, a strong uh, uh, nature. And those of you who are more interested into this intrinsic weakness of political parties in Iran, I recommend uh, a rather uh, old but very, still very valid article by uh, Fakhreddin Azimi on this, which came out in the Iranian Studies uh, Journal. So, uh, where have Iranian presidents been successful? I think uh, I've gone on, gone on quite a bit about the weaknesses and uh, sort of shortcomings of Iranian presidencies. Well, uh, in post Khomeini Iran, one area in which Iranian presidents have had some leeway and have been successful into shaping uh, the overall state um, direction has been, for example, foreign policy. Now, Iranian presidents do not really decide foreign policy. Again, uh, Milani's uh, uh, postulations about the supremacy of the Fagi in, the, in, in foreign policy, in, in, the, in, in general statecraft, hold for foreign policy, but they influenced it in clear ways. So, for example, you could argue that uh, Rouhani's election and Rouhani's first mandate has been really dominated by the nuclear issue. And uh, when he uh, stood up as a candidate, uh, one of the key features of the presidential elections of 2013 was that it was really a referendum of sorts on the conduct of the nuclear issue. Because most of the candidates were invested in the nuclear issue in one way or the other. There was the outgoing nuclear negotiator, Saeed Jalili. There was the old nuclear negotiator, the, one, the only one who had reached some form of a real deal with the West previously Hassan Rouhani. Then there was the uh, foreign policy advisor of, uh, um, of um, uh, Khamenei, Ali Akbar Velayati, who in one of the presidential debates threw open the whole shortcomings of Jalili's conduct of the nuclear policy. So it was really a referendum of sorts. So the electorate were, yes, they were going to the ballot box and writing the names of one of these approved candidates, but they were also voting for uh, different directions in nuclear policy. And that's what it turned out to be. And uh, you could argue that one of the uh, main reasons why the nuclear uh, issue has been solved to some extent, and uh, there is an open rather than closed uh, British embassy in Tehran, and uh, today the French foreign minister has set foot in Tehran, and so forth and so forth, is because Rouhani is there. And Rouhani has managed to prevail and to uh, 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 effectively uh, persuade the Supreme Leader Khamenei to relinquish some of his uh, animosity and some of his opposition to uh, the United States, to the resolution of the nuclear deal, to all the nuts and bolts which have been ironed out in the, the negotiating processes in Vienna and in uh, Geneva. And um, the reverse, of course, happened during Ahmadinejad's uh, period. And Ahmadinejad was, uh, you could argue, the precursor of uh, uh, some uh, very unsavory characters that are today on the scene, from uh, Marine Le Pen in France to, of course, the Donald in America and more, in that he was uh, um, unabashed uh, a populist who 
uh, did away with tradition. The tradition and the routine and the uh, precedents set by other presidents were of no significance for him. And Ahmadinejad really embodied this sort of a entire systemic challenge to, uh, to tradition that you see nowadays in many other, uh, in many other arenas. Uh, and um, he, of course, convinced uh, Khamenei to adopt a very stern position on the nuclear issue and to, and to uh, reach the completion of the nuclear cycle and to uh, aggrandize and expand uh, the nuclear program at great cost uh, for uh, the Iranian nation. So. The presidents, and of course, Rafsanjani started a tentative dialogue with the European Union, which was stymied uh, by all manner of, uh, of events and more. But the crux of the matter is that these presidents have all managed to impart different directions in very significant ways to aspects of foreign policy, of economic policy, and beyond, without necessarily having the power to do it directly. So they made use of their popular mandate, they made use of their standing within the state system to influence rather than to rule or to make the decisions themselves. And this is one of the characteristics and one of the unique elements of the Iranian presidency, if you want. Um, the Iranian president has to be a persuader. He has to be uh, a horse whisperer, if you want. He has to be somebody that... Uh, manages to uh, uh, hit well beyond his, uh, his weight uh, and uh, influence areas of, um, of, uh, of statecraft which are not really uh, in, his, uh, in his mandate. At the same time, presidents at times uh, have to stick out limp and uh, engage in very risky business. And, for example, um, Ahmadinejad, in my view, was one of the big risk-takers risk because he uh, undertook very unpopular and very uh, critical uh, reforms and changes which uh, did not go according to plan and, were, uh, um, and their lack of success were attributed to him, but they had to take place. So, for example, Ahmadinejad was the person who uh, removed uh, the subsidies which were really debilitating uh, the Iranian state. Uh, it caused off a lot of protests. It was handled in a, in a less than efficient way, but it brought to fruition a process which had been ongoing, ongoing, ongoing in the level of discussions. It had started in the early 90s and finally came to a crux with uh, Ahmadinejad uh, himself. So, um, in what ways are uh, various presidencies linked to each other? Well, one of the problems of, uh, of linking these presidencies together is that uh, one of the main uh, reasons for which each of these presidents, at least in the post-Khomeini period, has actually uh, stood up and ran for office is the premise that what was going on before that was really flawed and wrong and needed correction. And that has been uh, a sort of a leitmotiv, a recurring theme in uh, presidential ambitions. As we said, president, presidential candidates are not people who go through primaries. They're not people who uh, necessarily have a lot of inner regime su uh, support, but they are ambitious characters. They're people on a mission, and uh, their mission is to rectify 
what has gone wrong before that. So in the case of Khatami, it was, for example, getting out of the strictures and the dour conservative discourse which had been in place since that fourth Majlis lecture of 1992. In the case of Ahmadinejad, it was uh, portraying a dramatic change and end to all this reformist intellectual discourse which was, was good while printed on theoretical journals, but in practice it just led to uh, stalemate within all the, all the levers of state. And of course, Ahmadinejad was the first one to come out with the populist argument that uh, they, uh, the, 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 the swamp, the, the political uh, case and more, they don't allow ordinary people to enter into the forbidden precinct of power. So that was the change message of Ahmadinejad. Rouhani was, of course, in favor of, of resolving this nuclear issue which had become a real predicament. So they're agents of change and their mission is to bring significant change and to alter the status quo in a, in a very significant way. Uh, so much so that uh, they spent, or at least they attempt to spend the honeymoon period, the very first period of the presidencies, rectifying past mistakes. And of course, by doing so, they create a fundamental and substantial disconnect from their predecessors. And this means that presidencies uh, are, uh, very complex periods and mandates, even in common speak in Iran, are really uh, referred to as Dorans, as periods. So when you talk to ordinary people in Iran, they'll talk about the Doran Khatami, the Doran Rouhani, the Doran Ahmadinejad, as though these are specific uh, periods in the political history of, uh, of the country. And uh, Doran in, in this term, and when you, when you speak even uh, to ordinary Iranians and, and to non-ordinary Iranians, Doran has, has, has a different meaning with respect to the mandates of, of Western leaders, uh, with respect to the prime ministerial tenures of British prime ministers or German prime ministers uh, or more. So to uh, move towards a conclusion. What can we infer from the study of the presidency uh, in Iran? Well, the presidency in Iran has been the harbinger of, of uh, innovations, I would argue, within the tradition of Iranian statecraft and of um, certain traits and bonds between the state and society which have assumed some regularity, uh, regularity. Uh, the first one of these is and concerns elections. I think uh, the defining legacy of the presidency is the chance accorded to society every four years to, uh, if you want, poke its nose into the internal debates, disputes, and, uh, if you want, political confrontations of this opaque state system. So uh, the role of elections is that of uh, putting, if you want, uh, these disputes within the elite, within the factions, within the left, within the right, and more, over to the public and uh, giving the public a limited but important uh, say in making a choice whether they want a uh, uh, harsh, harsh view towards the West or a more open view, whether they want more repression of the press or some, some more open, openness and so forth. So um, I don't think this will change in the mid to short term, um, the um, um, attention of 
uh, most political players and public opinion is now uh, devoted to uh, the upcoming presidential elections in May, and this will, uh, this will carry on, I think, for the foreseeable future. At the same time, the presidency, because of the lack of clear demarcations in the authority of each institution, because of the very personal nature of the presidency, which emerges from this lack of political parties, from factionalism, from the loose nature of, uh, of uh, political organizations, political organization within the Islamic Republic, isn't an institution that can be defined according to well-defined canons. We cannot trace, if you want, the institutional boundaries uh, of the Islamic Republic according to uh, well-defined uh, facets, well-defined canons, and well-defined uh, uh, boundaries. So uh, attempts to do so, in my view, according to um, uh, um, the mainstream canons of Western political history uh, falls short. And we are still, I think, one or two political generations away from having a routinized, institutionalized, and regularized presidency within the Iranian state establishment. But this also opens up uh, broader considerations on the nature of the state in Iran and whether, uh, as we are two years away from, exactly actually two years away from the 40th anniversary of the Iranian revolution, whether the revolution has resulted into the creation of uh, a durable, well-defined state system. Well, some bodies have a regularity and a power of their own. We could argue that the supreme leader has been more or less the same since 1989, and uh, the Guardian Council since 1992 has had its own powers. But seen as a whole, the state system is still one in which there's a lot of debate, there's a lot of contention, and could be subject again to constitutional revision. At the height of Ahmadinejad's confrontation with, with the rest of the state system during his second mandate when the very powers and authority of the president were brought under question, there was suddenly a proposal flared up to reintroduce the, the, prime, minister, the prime ministerial position all of a sudden, from nowhere. And uh, um, this tells you that uh, 40 years on, institutional design is still uh, very much uh, an open debate. And uh, moving, more, uh, moving further back in time, one could argue that uh, one of the very aims of the Constitutional Revolution, that of creating an impersonal state in Iran, is still a work in progress. Thank you very much for your kind attention. Thank you very much for that uh, stimulating talk. Um, I'm reminded, actually, when you say about uh, Rafsanjani's memoirs and his memory that, uh, yes, there are a number of politicians that I've looked through with their memoirs and they don't actually concur very much with yeah. the documents, I have to say, but they're very selective. As they say, history is as much what you forget as what you remember. So I think all of them are guilty of it to some extent. Mm -hmm. So we can now open the floor to questions. Uh, as I said beforehand, this is being recorded, so I would be grateful if you were to ask a question, if you could just state your name and affiliation, if any. And uh, to state your question as clearly as you possibly can, uh, so that uh, our recording devices can pick it all up in good detail. Uh, and then obviously I'll see which will do his best to answer that. So who would like to kick us off, gentlemen? Uh, Clovis Meath Baker, I'm an associate fellow at RUSI. 
and I wanted to ask about how you thought the institution of Malayatin Fakih might change. There was talk years ago about how it could be exercised by a group of uh, theologians rather than a single individual. I don't know where that's got to. But if it is a single individual again, when the current incumbent dies, the way that individual exercises the power, which again is, as far as I can work out, isn't very clearly defined, presumably it could make a big difference to how the presidency operates. Shall we pick a few or shall we just answer? answer because it will okay. warm other people up? Um, well, if you look back at uh, the way the Velayat Fagi changed after Khomeini's death, it was really a product of the people who uh, managed to uh, end up at the top of the constitutional debates and have uh, and 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 basically push their own vision through. And uh, uh, interestingly enough, uh, the person who became the Fagi was, of course, the outgoing president. And uh, he made use of his position within the system, although a rather weakened uh, presidency, to, uh, um, to push forward for, uh, for certain changes. Uh, I think it's a bit too early to tell because um, we are in a situation right now quite similar to the um, one after Montezeri's fall into disgrace in the sense that there isn't a clear successor in sight um, to Khamenei. And Khamenei hasn't appointed or anointed one. There's no Fagin waiting like we had with Montezeri for most of the, uh, most of the 80s. And uh, um, the Islamic Republic now is in the throes of a slow but happening generational change. I mean, we all witnessed the recent uh, dying of actually the first president of post Khomeini Iran, uh, of, of, of Iran, and uh, uh, Hashimi Rafsanjani. And uh, how exactly that generational change will happen is very tough to say because there's no vehicle through which this generational change can be affected. So Iran is, I think, diametrically opposite to this to China. In China, you had the Communist Party standing there and bringing forth very uh, regular and very well-organized generational transitions from 1949 onwards, despite the fact that the Communist Party role in China has never changed. There is no such vehicle in Iran, and this makes it very difficult to understand uh, personal and power relations. I think the person really calling for a collegial uh, leadership more than anybody else in recent times was Rafsanjani. Rafsanjani has died without, without having a, a real successor in place and without bringing about a, a new generation that can fill his shoes and his specific mediating uh, roles within the state system. So uh, one, one possibility is that if this leadership change happens in the not too distant future, again, the presidency could have a very strong role in it. And we could either have an elevation of the current president to the leadership role or the president having a very decisive role. So it will be really a function of who is capable of exerting influence at that point in time. And I don't really subscribe to the idea that everything is in the hands of the revolutionary guards. I think this sort of transition requires a political uh, sort of acumen and a political mechanism which is, which is more uh, a product of, of factional balances uh, uh, than, than anything else. Do you, I mean, 
do you subscribe to this view that um, Rouhani could be a candidate? Well, the, the requirement for the Marjayat or, the, or having supreme religious authority was stripped away in 1989. So uh, uh, clerical rank is not really a determinant anymore. Uh, if Rouhani manages to position himself in at least the same position that Khamenei was in 1989, uh, he could have a chance. But also uh, becoming leader is also a question of... Uh, of rising to the occasion and not having a real uh, opponent that could that could rise uh, that that could be a very uh, 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 that could be a, a credible a credible uh, opponent. And again, I think the situation is very fluid. And I will just add an, an aside about generational change. The presidency could have been a vehicle for generational change because you could have had a, a generation of, of fresh candidates, of younger candidates that would assume the presidency and bring about a regeneration of the Iranian political class. And that sort of happened with Ahmadinejad. When Ahmadinejad was elected in 2005, that he was the first and to date only president of Iran who had no real working relationship with Khomeini. The, 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 the founding father, the, the, the linchpin, and the person with which association is a guarantee of being member of the inner regime. But of course, that was reversed in 2013, when we went back a generation. We had a sort of a rewind back to Rouhani, who, uh, in, his, in the cover of his memoir, uh, puts the photo of himself praying with Khomeini in Nofle Chateau in Paris. So... That's another major issue. How do you affect generational change within the political class? One way was through institutional regeneration, but that hasn't happened yet. Hi, I'm Kianush Bustani, graduate of law at the University of East London, also graduate of political science at the University of Tehran. Uh, your remark regarding the generational change in uh, recent Iran uh, just sparked this question in my mind. Uh, if I have this privilege to just take this interpretation of your speech about the situation of prisoners in Iran, uh, we can say that it's, the term innovation implies some kind of instability inside mm -hmm. the institutional statecraft. Uh, would it be wise to say or to conclude that after all these figures uh, will be, have been tied to the First generation of first gener generation of revolution and the supreme figure of Khomeini. Nowadays, this binary uh, to, this this binary contradiction of power between the Entesabian and Tahabi is more leaning towards the Velayat because from now on the Velayat can basically determine who is going to be the president and who is going to be the best person to fill this uh, position, uh, what's it? Can, can or can't? Can, can. Well, as I said, we always have to be very careful about the fact that the Iranian president is a product of two processes. One of them is the inner regime one, which is a combination of discussions within factions and groups and people as to who really runs for the presidency. And uh, some of it, as you know, spills in the press and makes for interesting reading. And, of course, the hurdle of the Guardian Council. So that's where, formally or informally, uh, the Supreme Leader comes in. And then comes the popular process. Regarding the first one, what is interesting to note is that virtually all the presidents that have made it to the presidency 
prior to announcing their candidacy, actually uh, had a discussion with Khamenei and secured his approval. This is the, the old, in my book, I actually bring out the records of this happening. Two people didn't do it and were unsuccessful. The first one was Musab in 2009. He actually admitted that he, he, had, he had not gone and spoken with Khamenei prior to announcing his candidacy and would do it at a later stage. He went past the Guardian Council but wasn't successful for reason that, reasons that we, we can discuss. And the second one was Rafson John in 2013. And again, uh, a few hours before this interior ministry deadline, he, he actually called Khamenei and uh, a close associate of his actually just said this, and tried to secure his approval before rushing to the interior ministry to register. And uh, Khamenei did not wish to talk about this over the phone. And, well, what happened was that he wasn't uh, elected. Uh, he wasn't even, he didn't even go past the Guardian Council. And the Guardian Council doesn't have to give any reason for disqualification, but the rumor was that it was for health reasons. And you have to say that with the benefit of hindsight, they were more or less right, because if he was president, he would have died in office. Um, but, but that is only one part of the process. That's not enough. Being, uh, gathering the approval of the Fagi is, does not grant you the presidency. Because you could argue that there were people far closer to Khamenei in 2013 than Rouhani in the final roster. There was Vilayati, there was Jal uh, Jalili, um, Golibov maybe. So there is, I think there is a realization within uh, the leadership, within the Guardian Council, within all these other intisabi bodies, that the intisabi part of the state system has a role and has a function. And it's part of this social contract, or this contract of sorts between state and society. And disregarding it too much can lead to crisis. So, especially after 2009, I think there's been a discreet and, and sort of silent rethink about how to... Uh, how to bring society in through, uh, through elections. And you could argue in the long run it has worked. It has worked because uh, the, the presidential elections in Iran are the only, I, I think, nationwide elections in the Middle East that are held with regularity, have some degree of pluralism and diversity in them, and attract the interests of society. You know, I think society is very interested and takes takes part in it seriously. So I think this sort of precarious balance, if you want, between these two different ingredients that make a president will remain in the, near, in the foreseeable future. I, mean, I suppose one of, one of the interesting things is, is uh, maybe to say that uh, having abolished uh, the office of prime minister, you know, and given the executive role to the president, the president himself, in a sense, has become prime minister. You know, in the face yes. of the Valet of Fari. I mean, and it's a question of where this sliding scale goes, and where the 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 appoint the, the the selection and the election, how you how you mix and match. And clearly, maybe in two thousand and nine, they got it slightly wrong. I had Roham next, and then. Um, so the two most important powers of any executive are power of appointment mm -hmm. and the power of patronage. Those are usually the two ways they're controlling um, institutions. So, uh, as far as the power of patronage is concerned, how much control does the presidency actually have over Iran's spending, Iran's oil income? So, for example, in the process of negotiating an annual budget, how much control, say, does someone like Rouhani have um, over that? 
then with the question of appointments, when, when there is a change of administration in Iran, how deep do, into the state structure, how deep does the turnover go? I mean, at what level do people have to resign, and at what level do people, are sort of people holdovers from previous administrations? Thank you very much. I think there are two very valid questions. If I can start with the last one. Um, the turnover is really, once again, a product of, uh, of each president's outlook and each president's uh, views in, in this regard. So, for example, Ahmadinejad had a very dramatic turnover, actually an unprecedented turnover. I brought out the statistics over the number of high-level officials he got rid of in my book, and uh, I think in the first term in office he went through two central bank governors, if I'm not wrong, which, which even for Iran is rather, rather unprecedented. And um, um, again, I don't really see a lot of regularity there, unfortunately. Uh, uh, turnovers at the higher level uh, do happen, and the presidency has control over certain ministries, uh, less control over others. So it's, it's often said, and I think with degrees of validity, that, for example, the information ministry is not really within the remit of the president. Uh, the foreign affairs one is to a, to a great extent, but again requires consultation. The presidency has more leeway into the economics ministry and the oil ministry and more. And to answer the second question, again, even there, it's not even a question, I think, of factional, factional allegiance. It's more a question of the personal rapport, if you want, that the president has with other key figures. So, for example, the relationship between Ahmadinejad and Ali Larijani, who has a sort of a control over the matches, but really awry in, this, in the second mandate. And this led to really incredible delays over the budget. And you will remember that Iran started to be governed on, on monthly budgets or on quarterly budgets, on, on, on things that really are, are incredible if you think at the size of the state in Iran. Uh, and uh, with Rouhani, it has been much smoother. And most of what Rouhani has, uh, has proposed in terms of budget, in terms of the consumption of the oil budget and more, has been approved. And this is not, I think, a consequence of factionism, because, because up to these recent parliamentary elections, the parliamentary majority was not really amenable to, to Rouhani and isn't very much so now as well. It, it, keeps, it kept, for example, impeaching many of his ministers. But it, it, it was more a question of the ability to haggle, to compromise, to negotiate behind the scenes in informal ways. And this brings out even the um, two, I think, features of the presidency. One of them is the ability to build informal coalitions from scratch, not necessarily based on, on, on previous allegiances, friendships and more, but, but start from scratch one, once present and, and build coalitions that could last uh, for the short term but get things done. And then uh, the second thing is that the presidency is uh, effectively a um, uh, a sort of a, a port of call for certain people to make their views and their uh, programs and their perspectives turn into reality through the presidency. So no doubt Rouhani is, uh, is guided by people who uh, some of them have worked with him in the past, others who haven't, and use him as a conduit 
for a certain type of spending of the oil ministry, a certain type of spending of the economics ministry. So, uh, again, uh, I think the informality and I think the ability to straddle these various and, and put on these various caps or hats plays a very key role. Before uh, Rouhani elected, Khamenei once talked about that maybe change the presidency system and come back to the private yes. system. How much do you say that is a capacity and a possibility to, to change the system there before Khamenei died or maybe after? Well, again, that was an interesting incident because it was a... It was a proposed reform which came about as a consequence of Ahmadinejad's personality, not as a consequence of uh, some deep thinking over the presidency per se. No? I mean, nobody, nobody says that now. Nobody was saying it during Khatami's time, and nobody dared to say it during Rafsanjani's time. So, it, it, once again, it brings you out the idea of whether really we can start using terms such as institution, uh, state in the Western connotation and more because every time a president comes to power and every time he starts swer swerving off the path and going on a, on a specific trajectory, there is this idea of institution, institutional design popping up without actually it, it, it taking place. I, I think the chances of that are slim. I think that there is too much interlocking uh, sort of views and too much stalemate at present within factions, within groups, within personalities in Iran to bring about such a, such a dramatic change in the constitution. And if they want to play by the rules, if you look at the very last article of the present, present constitution, amending the constitution is a very tricky task. It's, it's far more tricky than Article 50, maybe. So, um, well, it, it requires a lot of... It requires a lot of uh, alignment of stars in the Iranian state system for, for changes to happen. So I, th I don't really think that until the current leader is in place, we will see much in terms of formal constitutional change. But as to what will happen to the presidency if another president of a different persuasion takes over, that we will have to see, because in the same way in which the presidency has been completely shaped by personal traits and the, by, by the personality of all these presidents, I think even the next president after Rouhani will, will be the same. Can I take one last question? Is there anyone with a last question? Urging? You're obviously very, very keen to pick up this book when it comes out <laughs> in, the, in the summer, which... Uh, before I, before I get to thanking Siyar let me just alert you because my, my instruction sheet here tells me that I ought to do this. And just to let you know that the next lecture will be on the 7th of February. And it is by Sarah Al-Sharif, who is going to talk about Saudi female entrepreneurs. Something more diametrically opposite to the current talk, I can't imagine. And the least is diversity. Uh, I think interest, yes. No. Diversity and... Uh, uh, an interest. So, thank you very much for an thank excellent you. talk, Siobhush, and thank we you. very much look forward to the book. My pleasure. Thank I you think I've much. sort of read bits of it in some ways, haven't yeah. I, in some ways, but I look forward to the finished product. Uh, it just leaves me to ask you all to show your appreciation to him thank for you. an excellent talk. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.